what am I going to preach on? Just kidding. <laughs> um, our text this morning is uh, from John chapter 19, verses 28 to 30. Uh, listen as I read from God's word. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Uh, Pray with me now that God would bless his word. Thank you, God, so much for your word that you are not only our uh, creator uh, and king, but also our redeemer. I pray that you would open this passage to us so that we can see uh, the greatness of Jesus as our king and our savior and that it would move us to trust you and to love you and uh, to love others. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of us have experienced deep suffering in our lives. But for most, it's hard to imagine the suffering that Jesus experienced. Jesus was scourged. Uh, for, for those of you that know, don't know what that means, it's this whip with multiple lashes on it, has rocks or sharp pieces of metal tied to the end so that when they would hit Jesus with it, those sharp objects would sink into his flesh. And as they would pull back the lashes, it would rip off chunks of flesh exposing muscle, bone. They shoved a crown of thorns on his head. They beat him. They made him carry a heavy piece of wood that they would later crucify him on in, in the hot and dry climate of Israel. But why, why does it matter that, that a Jewish man 2,000 years ago from the cross said, I thirst? Why does it matter that he experienced those, those sufferings? Um, well, when we look at this text carefully, I think we see that John carefully crafted the way that he presented Christ's last words from the cross in order to show us something more profound than just a history lesson on the sufferings of victims of crucifixion. Uh, In these last words, um, John shows us that despite the seeming defeat of the cross, Jesus is actually the true king and that this king has come and has saved his people. And the more that I looked at this text, the, the more that I saw you could unpack from it. It's just so rich and deep. But the, the two things I want to focus on this morning are uh, John presenting Jesus as the true king and showing that this king saves his people. So how how does John show that Jesus is the true king? Well, interestingly, it's by quoting Jesus saying, I thirst. 
how does that work? Well, it's interesting to note that John is the only writer of the four Gospels to explicitly point out the way that different aspects of Jesus' crucifixion fulfill Scripture. And you look back in, uh, in, in verse 28, it says that, that Jesus said, I thirst in order to fulfill the Scriptures. But before uh, we get into particularly which scripture that saying of Jesus fulfills, it's interesting to note that John begins to point out how Jesus' crucifixion fulfills scripture right after he records something that none of the other gospels record. He records the controversy about what was written above Jesus' cross. Um, if, if you remember, Pilate, the, the Roman governor over that area, had written over Jesus' cross, King of the Jews. And earlier in the chapter, we read that the Jews went back to Pilate, and they're mad because they don't want it to say King of the Jews. They, they, they tell Pilate, no, just, just have it say that he said he was King of the Jews, but that he's really not. You see, in, in the context of Jesus' crucifixion, uh, John has been presenting the Jews as these uh, power-hungry people who didn't want Jesus to be king. They wanted the authority that they had always enjoyed. Uh, they wanted the people to listen to them. They didn't want the people to listen to Jesus and take away their authority. Um, Pilate, the Roman governor over that area of the Roman Empire, is also presented as, as power-hungry. If, if you remember, he didn't even really want to crucify Jesus. He said, I, I don't find any fault in him. Uh, but the only reason he does crucify Jesus is because if he doesn't, there'll be a riot and he'll lose his job or, or, or worse. So in order to keep his position and please the, the Roman emperor, he keeps the peace by, by having Jesus crucified. But ironically, John points out that while these other characters in the story are grasping for power, really they don't have any. The, the Jews are ultimately powerless to crucify Jesus. They have to go to Rome to do it and get Pilate to do it. And, uh, and then they're ultimately powerless to determine what's written above Jesus' cross. And Pilate also is presented ultimately as powerless because the only reason he's crucifying Jesus is because he was manipulated into it by the Jewish authorities. Earlier in, in the chapter, the Jews threatened Pilate when he says, I don't want to crucify him. He didn't do anything wrong. They threaten him and they say, if you don't crucify him, then you're no friend of Caesar's. And so Pilate does it. So on the one hand, we have Pilate, the Roman uh, governor over that, peer, uh, over that uh, area, rejecting Jesus as king. And we have God's own people, the Jews, rejecting Jesus as king. And it's in this context that John begins to point out how the various aspects of Jesus' crucifixion fulfill scripture. And it turns out that all of the scriptures that he refers to saying that Jesus fulfills are about King David. See, King David 
was the model king of God's people. He's the guy that slayed Goliath and he delivered the Israelites from the Philistines. He made it so that they had peace throughout the whole kingdom. He delivered God's people as their king from, from their enemies. But, as we know from the story of David's life, he, he was far from perfect, right? He, 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 did, he did horrible things. He, he committed adultery. He, he murdered. So David was only a picture and a shadow of the greater eternal king to come that God promised would come. And when John begins to point out how all these aspects of Jesus' crucifixion fulfill these Davidic scriptures, including saying, I thirst, what John is saying is that despite the look of things, this is that king. This is that true eternal king that God promised would come. And the particular scripture that's fulfilled by Jesus saying, I thirst, is uh, Psalm 69 verse uh, 21, which says, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink, which corresponds to the sponge that the soldiers lifted to Jesus. And this, this psalm, Psalm 69, is about King David. And what it's about, it's about David suffering wrongfully persecution from those who didn't want to accept his kingship. Um, maybe it refers to when Saul was persecuting David. He didn't, he didn't want to recognize the, the rightful authority that God had given David as king. Or maybe it was Absalom when, when, when David had to flee. But the parallel that John is making is just as David's kingship was accompanied by rejection and, and hard times, it was ultimately established by God. And so too, despite the bleak circumstances of the, the crucifixion, Jesus' disciples leaving, the, the Roman Empire rejecting Jesus as king, his people rejecting him as king, he still is king. And when, when I saw this for the first time, I... I thought it was just so profound. I was like, wow, John uh, is, is presenting Jesus as king in, in spite of these, this seeming defeat and these bleak circumstances. But as I, I, as I thought about it, the, the truth is that it's, it's hard to believe that Jesus is king, isn't it? Um, people respond to this in different ways. Some respond in unbelief, like, like Pilate and the Jewish leaders. We don't, we don't want Jesus to be king. We want to be king. And so we reject Christ as king. Or maybe, uh, maybe you respond with, with fear of man. Like Peter in the previous chapter, uh, he, he denies even knowing Christ because he's afraid of the repercussions from others. But Perhaps the, the most difficult circumstance in which to recognize Christ as king is, is during trials, during, during suffering. 
it's especially hard to recognize the reign of Christ uh, when we go through difficult times. This could be a difficult relationship, um, a struggling marriage, uh, poverty, chronic illness. Maybe, maybe you've suffered abuse or the death of a family member or a close friend, the death of a child. And, and for those of us who haven't experienced deep pain and loss, we will. And in those times, just think, how, how could Christ be reigning right now? Uh, there's so many other people that don't have the trial that I'm going through right now. Why am I experiencing this trial? Is Christ really king? This actually is how the disciples seem to respond, for the most part. Um, they respond to Jesus' crucifixion in, in despair. In, uh, and we see this in Luke 24. If you remember on, on the road to Emmaus, those two disciples unknowingly talking to Jesus about the crucifixion, and their conclusion is we had hoped he was the one to deliver Israel. They'd given up. And then we see them later uh, going back to fishing. See, when Jesus isn't ruling the way that we think he should, we think he's not ruling at all. But I think what this text shows us is that when we really focus on Jesus' cross, we see how great of a king he is, and we want him as our king because this king has entered into our sufferings. Um, maybe some of you have seen that movie, uh, When We Were Soldiers. It's a powerful uh, portrayal of, of war, and w one of my favorite parts of the movie is when the colonel, um, uh, played by um, Mel Gibson, thank you, the colonel played by Mel Gibson, he is explaining to his men that they're about to go into this intense battle, the most dangerous um, type of combat in the Vietnam War, where they would get flown in by helicopters and dropped far behind enemy lines, hundreds of miles from any support, and they would fight the battle there. And he tells his men, he says, I'm going to be the first one on the field and the last one off, and I won't leave anyone behind. And you look at the man as he says that, and they just are filled with courage to go forward and, and, and fight this battle, come what may, because they know that they have a leader that they can depend on and trust. And, and Jesus, as our king, he doesn't rule us from afar, but he enters into our sufferings and rules alongside of us. And, and when we realize this, our burdens become bearable. Uh, this reminds me of a, of a story my friend told me, um, uh, sort of an illustration of, of a Christian bearing his cross, metaphorically speaking, you know, trials and things in his life, and it's just weighing down on him, and he's, he's, he's just getting tired of it, and he starts 
calling out to Jesus, this cross is so heavy, it's so hard to bear. And so Jesus says, okay, c- come over here. Uh, and, and he takes him to this room, and he opens the door, and in the room, uh, the room is filled with crosses. And, and, and Jesus says, take your pick, you know. <laughs> you can take whatever cross you want. And, and he's looking around, and he sees this one huge cross. It's like exponentially bigger than any of the other crosses. And uh, he says, whose cross is that? And Jesus said, that, that's, that's my cross. That's the cross that I bore for you. And, and the guy uh, keeps looking around, and he finds the smallest cross that he could find. And he says, I want that cross. <laughs> Give me that one. And Jesus said, man, that's the cross you came in with. <laughs> And the, the point isn't that in your trials, Jesus is going to belittle you and say, hey, I did a lot more than you. Uh, you know, tough, toughen up. The point is that when we really look at Jesus' cross, when we look at the trials that he entered into in his life for us, it makes ours so much more bearable because we know that we've had someone who's gone through them and who knows how to get us through them as well. Jesus, Jesus experienced the most profound rejection of others, the most difficult relationships. He was rejected by his people, by, by, by his bride. He experienced the most profound loss of family, the Father being, being separated from the Son for us. The Father looking and witnessing His Son suffer a brutal murder for the very people that were murdering Him. So by Jesus' life and death, Jesus entered into our sufferings every way and more, and he could sympathize with our weaknesses and bring us through every trial. And um, Isaiah 54, verse, or, uh, 53, verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We might think, well, that's, that's, that's nice, you know. <laughs> you know, he, he sort of, you know, they're in there with us. But, but Jesus does even more than that. Not only does he enter into our sufferings, but by his sufferings, he will bring an end to all suffering by defeating sin and death and reconciling us to God. And that's the next thing that, that, uh, that I want to look at that, that, that John shows us. John shows us that this king uh, saves his people. And we see this um, most profoundly in, in Jesus' last words, it is finished. And um, it's a pretty well-known word in, in Greek. Some of you may, may know it, tetelestai. Um, and, and there's a lot of things we could say to unpack the significance of that word. But um, one thing I want to say is, is that it seems to be sort of a technical term. Um, sort of like, uh, that's a wrap. If you say, that's a wrap, what do you think of? You think of 
a movie set, right, and a director. Uh, in the same way, to telestai is sort of a technical term for priestly service, referring to the priestly service that Christ accomplished on the cross as our sacrifice for sin. Um, and uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses um, 11 through 14, say, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So when Jesus said to Telestai, it is finished, what he's saying is that he has accomplished all the work for our salvation to reconcile us to God. But how, did, how does that work exactly? How does a Jewish man dying 2,000 years ago save me? Well, when we think about it, actually, it, it makes perfect sense. Um, it's interesting to note that the inscription above the cross for victims of crucifixion was actually where they would write the offense that the criminal was being crucified for. What did Jesus' inscription say? It said, King of the Jews. Jesus' offense for which he was being crucified was being king of the Jews. Now, from the Romans' perspective, from the, the Jewish leaders' perspective, Jesus was committing treason for illegitimately trying to make himself king. But the reverse is true, actually, isn't it? Jesus is the true king. We are the ones who've committed treason. We are the ones who have rejected Christ in our sin, in our unbelief. When we trust in Christ as our Savior King, He switches places with us. That's what He's doing on the cross. See, Jesus is the only one who has offered perfect obedience to the Creator King, God. Throughout all of His life, And so when we put our faith in Jesus, when we put our trust in him as our king, he takes our treason and he pays for it by the penalty of death on the cross. And he gives us his perfect righteousness. The perfect obedience that he offered to the Father is counted toward us so that when we stand before the king, we are not seen as as, as traitors, but we're seen as, as faithful servants. And we're accepted into God's eternal kingdom. See, the greatest need that we have is, is not deliverance from external trials, but forgiveness for our own sinful rebellion that has separated us from God. Um, there's an interesting uh, quote from uh, R.C. Sproul Jr. He said, um, why do, why do bad things happen to good people? That only happened once. And he volunteered. None of us is guiltless. When we 
look at our lives, we see that we are part of what's wrong with this world, that we contribute to the problems with our marriage and problems with our, our family and with our relationships. But in Christ's work, we can be perfectly forgiven and, and made part of his kingdom. And, and this is hard to believe too. It's hard for us to really embrace the free grace of the gospel. It, it doesn't really make sense to us. We don't go to Bruce Willis movies to see him forgive the bad guy, right? We, don't, we, we go to see him get things done, you know, and like make it happen, exactly, get, get revenge. That's what makes sense to us, retribution, but just free, dismerited grace. Is, is, is unbelievable. This is, this is what Paul says about it in um, Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8. He says, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. And, and, and rather than making grace cheap or something that, that we just trample under our feet, rather than, than that making us just think, wow, God will forgive me. He's just super gracious. I'll do whatever I want. Actually, when we really look at the magnitude of God's love and grace toward us in Christ, it makes us want to serve him even more. It just makes us love him more. It, that reminds me of uh, my, my time in seminary. Um, I would get these huge reading assignments. One class, I'm not even exaggerating, I had to read 4,000 pages for one class. And that's not even on top of the other stuff, that they, other assignments that I had for the class. And, you know, I initially went to seminary because I, I loved studying theology, you know, and I wanted to learn more. But there came a point, every, time, every semester there came a point where I was just like, this is not going to get done. And, and it became a burden to me. I didn't enjoy reading it anymore because it was a chore. It was a task. It, it was work. And so I, I, would, I would just give up. A lot of times I would just think, there's no way I'm going to get this done. Why, why do it at all? And I just sort of buckled under the weight of it all. Um, but the interesting thing is that the, the day after the end of each semester, I would be right back in the library with a list of books to read and study. And this time it, it was with joy. It was with, it was with I, I didn't feel burdened at all. I, I felt relaxed. I, I felt rejuvenated because it was no longer work. And that, that's, what we ha that's what happens uh, w when we forget that the work for our salvation is finished by Christ. We, we, if we compare our lives to God's perfect standard, if we look at how well we are submitting to God our King, we see it just doesn't add up. We see that we fall 
way, way short. And either we lower the standard to make ourselves think that we can keep it, or we just despair and we think, I'm not even going to try that at all. There's just no way. There's just no way I'm going to be able to live up to that. But when we see that Jesus has already accomplished the work for our salvation, that it's already finished, it becomes a delight to serve God. When we see the love that God has given us in Christ, it makes us not only love God more, but we can't help but overflow with love for others. When we see others in need, we want to reach out to them and assist them like we were assisted in Christ. When someone commits an offense against us, it becomes easier to forgive them because we see the great forgiveness that we have in Christ. And so what we see in this, in this passage is, is a, a carefully crafted text that presents Christ's crucifixion not as a defeat, but as a victory. And of course, what happens after this? He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. He was the first human being to receive a glorified eternal body, the first installment of the new creation. And he entered into the presence of God and sat down as our forerunner, as the guarantee that just as he passed through these trials and entered into glory, when we put our faith in him as our king, that we will follow. And no matter what trials we face, he'll bring us through them, even death. And we will be raised with him again and be made part of his eternal kingdom where there will be no pain, no suffering. And uh, so if, if you haven't embraced Christ as king, embrace him as king. Embrace him as the Savior King that has entered into your sufferings to give you strength as you face trials, but most importantly, for the reconciliation that he provides with God to be made part of his eternal kingdom. And if you have embraced Christ as your king, you might be thinking, I don't know that it's that simple. Does it really work that way, you know? Just like look at the cross and boom, I start forgiving people and loving people. Does that really work? Yeah, it does. But we need to, we need to really meditate on it. Really focus on it and just drink in the, the, the grace and love that God has given us in Christ. And when we do, we just embrace Christ more tightly. And we hold on to him in faith even more tightly. And, and we can't help but be changed and, and to reciprocate that to others. Let's pray. Thank you, God, so much for Christ, our King, who, even though we were rebellious and rejected you as king, crucified you, that it was, it was by your crucifixion that you entered into our sufferings and overcame them 
and that by faith in you, uh, one day we will be a part of your eternal kingdom where, where there will be no more pain and suffering. Pray that you would cause those truths to penetrate our hearts and, and transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.